The season finale of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in one of those annoying fender benders when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Today's season finale of The Road Taken is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice, in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. The Assistant is really helpful when we're on the road. When we're hungry and in the mood for a nice slice, I can just say, hey Google, where are nearby pizzerias? A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey Google, to get started. Welcome to the season finale of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. And we're recording this in sunny Los Angeles on October 25th. We've been home from tour for under 48 hours. How you doing, man? I'm feeling good. Had a nice day of rest and recuperation. Uh, ready to back out here on the on the work zone today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're only home for, what, like 10 days? And one of them we're spending here with each other. And I think it shows just our dedication both to this podcast, but to one another as friends. And absolutely. And I think that segues nicely. We don't have to get started right away, but okay, yeah, yeah. you might've noticed in your, uh, whatever your podcast uh, delivery system is that there is no guest listed today. And yeah. why, why is that, Chris? Well, there's a reason why, of course, you know, every other episode, there's a person's name. We've talked to Havoc, Race when Michelle Branch, the legend, Chris Hillman, Albert Hammond Jr., Malcolm Mooney, but this time, I don't know. It's uh, I guess I'd like to start maybe by introducing my guest, if that's okay. Please, please. All right. In a way, my guest is my dream guest, if you will. He's someone I've wanted to interview for a long time. He's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, yet also an open book at the same time. He's my right-hand arm man, my everything, my confidant, best friend, and silly rabbit. That's right. My guest this week is none other than Christopher C.T. Thompson. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Did you get the reference? I knew that there was a reference, but I did not get it. It's a Vistaviano. Clippers playing oh, right okay. now. So Okay. <laughs> the Clippers are hot. Yeah, Clippers that's are hot. Good, that was why. That's yeah, a good that bandwagon to be on. The, the good reference. bandwagon to be on. Yeah, so who are you interviewing this week? Um, I didn't prepare, I think, maybe quite as well as you did, but my guest today is a true Scorpio, and we're recording this during Scorpio season. Mm, yeah, yeah. So this is a really good time to catch him. And when I met him about halfway through my college experience— I was drawn to him by something positive and welcoming, not to mention some excellent sideburns. Thank you. And uh, this guy is extremely aware on stage when we're performing. He always knows exactly how many measures we have until a sex and change or if a tempo's out of whack or something like that. A bit of a security blanket in that way, if you will. If I'm Danny Dimes, he is my Saquon Barkley <laughs> running back screen. And... It's been a true pleasure in many ways to grow up with this guy. And my guest today is Christopher Joseph Bayo, CJB. Wow, that just, that warmed my heart, man. Thank you so much for that. Um, so 
In case you haven't figured it out yet, that's right. For the season finale, CT and I will be interviewing one another. And uh, this is something that, you know, the idea came up a couple weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. There are a lot of things I want to ask you. You know, I've known you for, what are we at, like 14 years now? I guess 15 years. 15 15 years I've known you, and I've never interviewed you. So, Well, I think that's one thing that's come up on a lot of the conversations we've had on here on this the first season, what a journey it's been, mm-hmm. um, is that some people we've known, like, say, for me, Pat Carney, some people I'd never met before, like, say, Havoc. And for both of those, whatever the experience or the the context coming into it, I thought that formalizing, sitting down with microphones, whatever, but sort of sitting down and, like, actually talk in a focused way about touring and about these things that, that we share— I think has been just as illustrated for the people I know as for the people that I don't know. Yeah. And I think, who do I know better than you? And I, I do think it will be interesting, some of the questions. You know, I may or may not have ideas of, of how you might answer things, but I think there are some things that I'm legitimately curious about. Let's get into it, man. My first question, and it obviously relates to live music and touring, what was the first ever concert you attended? I think the most literal answer was a Beach Boys show when I was three or under. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I really remember that is because there was a poster from that show on my wall of my bedroom growing up. So while I didn't remember a ton of the music per se, I remember being carried on my father's shoulders, like walking through what must have been a lawn on an amphitheater, blankets and people sit it and uh, the walk that I'm sure we've done many times. Um, I remember, I think, because the visual of the poster locked in the visual of the memory I wouldn't say that affected me per se, but that was definitely my first concert. And then what was the first one that affected you? The first one that really affected me was a Allman Brothers band show. I was about 15, and I believe the date was August 26, 1999. Nice. And it was at PNC Bank Arts Center, which is an amphitheater, central New Jersey, you know, where most of, most of, most of my uh, prehistory takes place. And it was a cool show. I mean, you know, like you're smelling weed— there's like this whole mix of humanity the of age ranges. There was a bit of a lot scene, which was was part of the whole experience. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a a younger hippie gentleman who had an extremely pristine, like 70s Ford Bronco. And these two old timers were just like loving it. That yeah. was the main like lots thing, was these two old hippies talking to a young hippie about how sick his Bronco was. But I think musically, the encore, there was a song called I believe it's called Nobody Left to Run With Anymore. That was a then new song for them. And the newest member of the band at that point who was in the extended family, uh, Derek Trucks, who still kills it today, you know, still has a a band with his wife, Susan Tedeschi. But he took a solo on this encore song that I really remember kind of blowing my mind, blowing my heart, whatever. Like kind of just like, I think maybe it was a combination of the actual notes he was playing, feeling like he was not that much older than me in a way that, I was able to project onto him yeah. what maybe, whoa, like maybe I could do that or something. But I think that show was very much the first show that really drew me to live music and to the the magic that that can be there. Now, I know you don't like smoking weed, but do you like the scent of weed and the association of live music with it? Not particularly. I mean, okay. at this point— I just no, thought it was interesting no. that was the first thing you said. Well, because that was—it was there was a—it smelled like danger. Okay. Uh, or whatever, like, you yeah, know, yeah. some sort of transgression okay. that, that was possible. You know, walking down most normal public situations, you wouldn't smell weed. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that this was a, a huge public situation and also people were smoking weed was was notable. Yeah. And I think it was also notable. I love that. Because my—hard to say with him, but I think my dad was both intrigued as a person and a little bit 
wary as a parent. Yeah, yeah. So I think he had kind of a, his reaction was, was funnily mixed. Okay. Which also made an impression. Nice. All right, CJB. My question also starts as a more, in the more formative years. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a, a little bit of a two-parter, but what, is, what was your best and or most nerve-wracking pre-Vampire Weekend live performance as a musician? Oh, goodness gracious. I'm going to answer this one honestly. And it was Are my, you planning to not do that for the other No, 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 no. But it is, it's like a little bit embarrassing, to be honest. Like, um, okay. just because I always cared about, like, music. I, I was in bands from the time I was 14. I took it very, very seriously. And my last year of high school, I really did not care for our band teacher. He did not do mm. a very good job. I'm not going to name him, but also like a person who like I learned the most from as a musician was my band teacher in from like middle school through 10th grade. He ended up having to move out of where we lived due to like a tragedy. Um, okay. And so, and I've he's, heard about him. Yeah, years. yeah. He's some, like, his name is Bob Smith. He's someone who like absolutely changed my life. But so we had a very poor band teacher in my senior year and I was pretty disappointed in it. And so what I did was, before our senior concert. Which is the big one. It all led up to that. Which is the big one. Um, I drank a bit before the show. Oh, no. And too much for someone of my age. And I, you know what? I actually don't think I invited my parents because I was, like, <laughs> very unhappy with the direction the band had been in. Because you— No, not because I knew I was going to okay. drink, but because I was like, you know what? This is not going to be a good performance. I'm not, like, proud to be on this stage. I'm not excited about it. And so I— Drank and got a little bit sloppy, and it was a little bit scary. I held it together, but it was easily the least professional I've ever been in a musical environment in my life. Do you remember, can you remember a song or a specific tunes you played? No, I mean, I remember, what I remember was I was playing marimba in this one piece, and... Oh, were you in the percussion Yeah, I would section? do percussion in You know, you have always wanted to be a rock drummer. I, I always wanted to be a drummer. But yeah, so, so I just remember afterwards, like, wheeling my marimba off and <laughs> being too drunk to, like do it well and my sheet music went flying everywhere and I was like really nervous and other people picked it up for me but I was I was not holding it together that was my definitely my Jackson main moment as a performer <laughs> was my high school recital where I was drunk I feel like that's what the scriptwriters probably based it on yeah yeah the definitely tale of that has grown definitely There's probably someone from Bronxville oh yeah yeah, yeah definitely so that's yeah that's definitely my answer to that question um, I appreciate hey I appreciate your honesty yeah yeah no that's that's what this is all about it's about being honest with each other what was the first show you ever played? First show I ever played. Um, well, going off what you said in in like music performance of any kind mm-hmm. was probably fourth grade in my Upper Freehold Regional Elementary School was the year you could pick a band instrument, and that's when band like could begin. Yeah. when you graduated from like recorder or whatever. Uh-huh. So that was probably my first one. Was whatever the fourth grade band thing was. Yeah, I guess I mean more like yeah. uh, playing guitar, like a rock show or whatever. Um, what was the name of your high school band? Oh, there was a few, all of which Will you are, share the embarrassing one? Uh, Would sure. you rather not? Okay. No, no, it's fine. Um, funnily enough, I don't think we even came up with this. I think our drummer, Mark, who was from the Baltimore area, I think maybe had heard of a band in, his, in that zone, but, you know, they weren't known nationally. Yeah, yeah, they weren't so we active, could, we could, yeah, yeah. Uh, The name was Phallus in Wonderland. So you stole that name from another band? Uh, yes, I think so. Despicable. Um, and I think there <laughs> And I think we also had a, played a show under the name Coitus, so you could tell what was oh, yeah, yeah. on our, you know, ugh. regardless. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, oh, boy, is it getting hot in here? Deep. Okay, the first performance of a rock thing, though. Okay, I don't think we really ha- even had a name at this one. So the, okay. the naming came right. later when we were more 
confident in our uh, performance skills. But I believe the first rock thing I ever did was at a coffee house. Yeah. There was a quasi-benefit. I don't exactly but it was sponsored by the LGBT organization at our high school. And we played Oye Como Va. Nice. Um, I believe into there's like the song it goes into kind of. I think we played both yeah. songs. I had a Santana tablature book, which I believe is where I learned the entire thing from. Yeah. I was playing guitar at the time. Yeah. I believe I wore a John Deere hat, a cardigan sweater, which I still have and still fits, oddly. And that that was I remember very nerve-wracking, very exhilarating. I remember like some of our friends who were there who weren't playing got a little jealous and like, you know, showed mm-hmm. up after the Christmas break with a with an instrument being like, oh, yeah, you know, I just got a bit, you know, who knows? What a coincidence. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it was this performance at a coffee house of Oyakomova was probably the first, like, non-school band performance. So Oyakomova is a song by Santana. And I feel, I feel like I told you the story, but this year marks 20 years of Supernatural. Uh, Santana oh, I'm, Supernatural. I'm well aware. But yes. so, so my dad went to the concert. Did I tell you the story? No. I can't remember. So he went to the 20 years of Supernatural concert in Jones Beach. And in the parking lot, he fell and cracked a rib. And I think he hurt his wrist as well. He had his wrist in a band when I was with him afterwards. But he still went to the show. He still went to the show. And even though he was in extreme pain, he went to 20 Years of Supernatural. And afterwards, I asked him, how was it when they played Smooth? And my dad said, I don't know that one. What, what what was he buying a ticket for though? Well, he was buying a ticket for, for Oye Como Va, but then when I sang, but that's not on Supernatural. I know they they still did Oye Como Va. Okay. Anyways, okay. I just, that's a side story. I just thought it was very <laughs> impressive that he attended Truly. a concert with a cracked rib without even knowing what smooth was. Did he get medical attention in the parking lot and then go? to No, the I think he just got it when he went home. <laughs> Respect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, my next question for you is: When you think about what you envisioned or daydreamed mm-hmm. when you were sixteen of what being a touring musician would be like, yeah. How accurate have those visions proven to be? And you can use a zero to hundred percent, yeah, pitchfork scale, yeah, what, yeah, whatever sort of thing you want. Um, I would say forty percent. Ooh, low, okay. low. And I think that the part of performing lives up to what I thought it would be of being on stage and being on stage for excited audiences. Because I, I mean, I, whatever. I played shows so much from when I was fifteen, sixteen, and there would be bad ones and there would be good ones. And when the crowd was really rowdy, it was like life-affirming and incredible. And I, I said, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I would love to do with my life. But um, what I never thought of, and I think what people don't really think of, is how much time is spent not off stage. And we've talked about the 22 hours. Not, not on stage. Not on stage, I mean. Yeah, yeah, the, the hey, 22 hours, yeah. That's what this podcast is all about. Exactly, but the boredom, <laughs> the, the sheer boredom of it and the repetition, um, those are things you don't really think about. And you're off stage more than you're on stage. So that's why I would give it a low rating of about 40%. But I still love it with all my heart. Um, when did you know you wanted to be a musician? Uh, I feel that's kind of a like an alley-oop question, but I'm going to complicate it like I normally okay, do. Okay, nice. Uh, well, I guess wanted and thought I could are two separate things. So I guess we'll just deal with the wanted. The thought I could, you know, you still kind of like question that sometimes mm-hmm. or like how real is it, whatever. The wanted to, I think, yeah, ever since I was a kid, like that music which, you know, when you're a kid is not really performing music, but is listening to is like bonding with my grandmother over, you know, the rest of my family didn't love jazz necessarily. But I, I you know, it appealed yeah. to me and like the act of bonding with her, listening to records or tapes or whatever it was and and her telling me like how she saw Miles Davis in the 50s in Rochester. Um, that led into, you know, when you grow up and are able to play instruments and perform, that it, the feeling of participating in, in this, in the listening aspect and the creation is kind of like confusing, but 
I think, as you said, life-affirming in some ways when it goes well. I never really, like most things, it sort of like sneaks up on me. I probably wanted to be a musician from like very young just yeah. because it was, when I think of what really excited me or grabbed me in like a deeper existential way, music was one of the few things that ever did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I probably from like fourth, fifth grade, playing my grandfather's trombone, feeling like being part of an ensemble was very fun, much like being on a sports team of like, I'm playing this one note, but everyone together, if they're doing their jobs, creates this big thing greater than anything I could do alone. So probably from that era. But, you know, I'd, I probably didn't start daydreaming about the rock zone until I you know, started liking fish when I was 16. And then, and then sort of that took shape, but probably from way earlier than that. Would you consider yourself in the rock zone now? Uh, <laughs> you know, just part of me. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I got more to give. Yeah, yeah but okay. All right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, speaking of rock zone, what is your favorite non-rock band rock zone show you've ever seen? Non-rock band show. Um, I got to say, I was pretty blown away by the Chemical Brothers this past summer in Lisbon. And, you know, I like a lot of electronic music. But that whole vibe of being in a big field in Europe with beautiful visuals and incredible music. And, uh, yeah, it just was like a full immersive experience. And you were out in the mix, right? I was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right up front. Um, I haven't seen as much like large scale electronic music as I would like to. Like I, I, we were starting to tour when Daft Punk was doing their kind of famous tour like 12 years ago. So actually getting to experience that was probably my favorite, definitely my favorite recently. And then also, I mean, I guess like my parents would take me to Carnegie Hall and stuff when I was growing up for classical music and uh, I saw the classical piano player Maurizio Pellini do uh, the Waldstein Sonata, which is a Beethoven sonata, and that would probably be the other one. That's like a piece of music that gets me right on the brink of crying most times. So I would say those would be two non-rock zone live music experiences that were pretty important to me. Now, when you when you go out into the crowd of festivals, do you feel the need to hide yourself? We all wear masks, Mr. Ifkiss? Well, I think when it's dark out in the field, I mean, I, I I watched a bit of the Chemical Brothers like two nights before in Madrid and a couple of people were coming up to me, but people just want to enjoy the music. They're not going to... Because I, I remember once that whole concept of doing that, it was, I think it was Reading and Leeds, maybe 09 or something. I don't think I actually met him, but someone said that Daniel Radcliffe was like in the mix, in the peak Potter zone. And he was wearing like a Darth Vader helmet. Yeah. So he was able to get the experience of being, uh, being in amongst the... Yeah. Amongst the crew, but not having the uh, Lady Gaga fame as a prison thing. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, I'm not as famous as Daniel Radcliffe was at peak Harry Potter. Sadly? No, not sadly. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, turn, your turn. It's my turn, man. Back in the early days of touring with the band, you used to say that you felt weird about calling yourself a musician. Why? I almost uh, foreshadowed that with my previous answer. Yeah. Um, self-confidence issues. Well, some of it is a little bit surface level. Some of it is like not wanting to be too self-aggrandizing or being too, uh, too just too big about it felt like it would make it go away or something. You know, like we were doing well, we were doing notably well for our peers and and, and stuff. And it just kind of felt like if I was walking around with a big ego about it would, would sort of, I feel like it would, it could go away or like it, there's a karmic level of investing in it to like, to earn it, to like make it keep going or something. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a certain level of that, of like not wanting to um, overly invest myself and, and, and mess it up or something. I also think at that time, 
which is less true now, although still a little bit true. At that time, I was, I was what, like a year, a year and a half into playing drums, full stop. Right, yeah. And so, you know, like everyone in the early Vampire Weekend days, everyone was kind of playing a secondary instrument. But I think I was the furthest away from my secondary instrument. So I think there was a bit of that too of kind of, yeah, of just trying to be like realistic of like, which looking back, I was a musician, I am a musician, yeah, I yeah. will be, whatever happens. But yeah, I think there was a, a little bit of that trying to, mainly karmically, of trying to like, I know I'm not the best drummer, I'm like figuring it out. It works well in this context, but like, if I was like talking big game, like people could say, well, you know, play a paradiddle. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great do. answer. Thank you. <laughs> I really do. Uh, okay. What performer's style mm-hmm. or stagecraft do you think you've taken the most from? And I don't really mean like like fashion style because I know no, yeah. I know those. Um, I would say that the Clash, watching old performances of them, uh, specifically Simonon, or, or yeah, just but the like whole, all the whole the whole vibe. And I know I look substantially less cool than them, but just in terms of the the dedication, the passion, the depends energy, on who, depends on who you ask. That's wow. Well, I, I like that karmic I, answer. I I definitely feel that way. But watching old performances of them. And then there's this footage of at the drive-in performing at Big Day Out, I believe in like 1999, playing the song Arc Arsenal. That's going to be great for the annotation, by the way. Oh my God, where Omar, <laughs> the guitar player, is going absolutely nuts. And I definitely look nowhere near as cool as he does on stage in that video. I'm definitely doing my doofus version of what he's doing. But when I think about a performance style or the platonic ideal of holding a guitar and dancing on stage, I would say it's that performance. Okay, then let me quick do a follow-up. So this is technically another question, but it relates closely. What is your favorite of your own stage moves? Oh, God. You know, this is kind of a question that Normally wouldn't be crazy about. I find it weird well, already. Hey, I know, I'm, I know, I know. You're got, asking the hard gotcha, question. Gotcha podcasting asking, at its finest. You're asking the hard question because I do like, I don't like talking that much about dancing on stage because it's definitely not like this premeditated thing. It's whatever like my body wants to do depending on the notes that I'm playing. But I think my shoulder thing where I slam it down. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the, like, the yeah, yeah the... that one. I would say that's probably my favorite of my own moves if I am forced to pick one. Um, have you ever felt embarrassed, ashamed while performing a show? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get embarrassed easily. Maybe the the one example that really sticks out, first thought, best thought, is um, this was, we played a couple nights at Bowery around the first album release. Two nights. Two nights, yeah. I'm not sure. I think it was the first night, as Vampire Weekend did often in those days, or always in those days, we opened with Mansard Roof. And sort of right around the album release, you know, which means that there's a lot of eyeballs on you. There's, you know, there's a certain amount of pressure building before the debut. And then now it's here. And now in some ways it felt like all the information is on the table. So the judgments will come thick and fast now, say, mm-hmm. in reviews or, or, you know, Brooklyn Vegan comments or whatever the form they took at that point. Pre-Twitter, obviously. Uh, so, I, yeah, there was, I believe it was the first show, <laughs> cracking a Mansard. Oh, man. It's crazy, man. It's Barry Barham sold out. Man, new albums out in stores now. And uh, I think halfway through, I like did something maybe more theatric than normal. And I like when I did <laughs> put my right hand up to be extra dramatic, 
the stick flipped out of her, like slipped out of my hand, yeah. which had not happened previously. No. And uh, I remember in a word you just used, I remember feeling like a real doofus. Yeah. I was just kind of like, I, maybe that's also kind of where the my karmic thing comes from is that when I try to get too like rock gaudy or something, I'm just like, you know, then it, like, there's I, a humbling. I, like, I mess up and then there's like, take it easy, hot shot. So I, th- that was definitely, I think because there was so much swirling at that particular point of like outside of us of attention and just like the idea of you know that that we're we're really starting now this is us i think like doing a dramatic gesture completely losing my stick the song like didn't break down but you know it was somewhat obvious i feel Uh, like there was a review of that show that that mentioned it it. but that mentioned it in in that it was endearing i believe i believe village voice but you'll have to check that later I'll 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 do the search okay um, okay. We're really, we're on the same wavelength here. My next question is, what is your fondest and or worst memory of the van years? Hmm. Which is roughly 07 to 08. And I'm specifically about the vanness of it. You know? Yeah. Huh. I would say the, the fondness comes from the, like, true camaraderie, where it would just be four of us in a minivan getting through it day after day, all believing in what we were doing, um, which I know isn't really a specific thing, but it's more just like the attitude, the excitement, not necessarily knowing if we were going to be playing music together, say, two years after that. That's probably like the best part when I think back. And then the worst part, I would say, is the uh, lack of privacy, the fact that you are surrounded by each other 24-7 every day, particularly when you're sharing rooms. That would be my least favorite part. And my single least favorite part is we drove into Montreal in December, and it was at the end of having driven a lot and, like, being around each other, like, for that year. And it was just so fucking cold and, like, being like, oh, this is very not fun. This is like, I thought I felt like my toes were going to get frostbitten or whatever. That's my single worst memory is uh, playing in Montreal in, in December of 2007. And at that point, Mexico and Canada were not included in, in one's data plan. So you couldn't, oh even, my you God. couldn't even call your, you know, true. your partner to, uh, to, uh, to commiserate. I was hoping you'd mention your skill at Guitar Hero. Oh, well, yeah, I was good at Guitar Hero. It's still a van, not no, our minivan, but yeah, still yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that as much. But yeah, you used I, to I was, crush Reptilia. I was good at, at Guitar Hero, definitely. And like uh, before, I forget by Slipknot, I was able to crush. And that one was hard. Um, all right, my next question for you. I feel like I'm, I'm maybe going a little too heavy on the shame angle, but uh, <laughs> in this section, I, that, yeah, I guess that is true. <laughs> I was thinking specifically about you with these questions, obviously. So, do you feel like you still get anxious before shows and? What specific shows besides like when we've played on TV have made you anxious in recent years? And this can extend to solo touring as well, if you would like to answer. Sure. Um, I still get anxious, but not nearly as much. I mean, I I think, thankfully, uh, time has taught me that you live to play another day, kind of. Um, So there are certainly individual shows like Madison Square Garden, which you talked a lot about on this season of The Road Taken. Uh, I think, you know, we're, yeah, next season. No, no, no MSG. We'll, we won't mess, <laughs> MSG free. mention it at all. <laughs> um, you know, so there's still some shows like that where you like, you think about more and you like, you really, you want to go well. Not that you, you want every show to go well, but there's like a more specific, like, if it doesn't go well, there's like a consequence or, or something. Um, but I would say, you know, like we were just in Mexico City playing some shows and first time we'd ever done headline shows there but I you know but I wasn't ner- I don't know I wasn't nervous the festivals we did in Guadalajara and Monterrey 
I think less nervous. Sometimes I'm just more stressed about warming up properly or like, yeah. you know, if we start with like a, with a particularly fast or like intricate song, like I, I want to, I get anxious to warm up. So I don't, I'm there when, when I need to be there. Okay. Uh, and sp- in terms of specific shows, actually, you know, I think when we were doing promo stuff for father of the bride, that was, I was just, cause we hadn't played in so long and like doing radio stuff, like, early in the morning in the, in the UK, not nothing to do with the UK, but it was just early in the morning and playing songs that we'd rehearsed for a long time, but there's still a, no matter how long you rehearse, there's always going to be a mental jump between performing a song and rehearsal, or for me yeah. anyways, performing a song and rehearsal and performing it in any context with people and microphones and a presentation yeah. of it. So I think that there was a those couple of radio sessions where I didn't have complete confidence in like, I knew I could play it, but you know, you're just kind of figuring that out. So I feel like there was a first few performances there that was like, yeah, that I was more stressed out than normal. I guess we haven't really talked about this yet on the podcast, but it is sort of funny how when you're in a band and you're getting ready to put out a record and you're playing on TV or doing radio, those are the times where playing the song live, you're actually at your worst. And yet those are the ones that are the most high stakes. In the the way the timing works out in the cycle. Exactly. And that's, I think that's for every band. Like, usually some of the worst performances of those songs will be the ones that are televised because you're least firing on all cylinders. I mean, yeah, when we did SNL, like particularly for Modern Vampires, like those, yeah, totally. those songs were like, I was so stressed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think we did well. and But I, even like if I watch it back, I haven't in a while, but if I watch it back, I can, I mean, I can, when I see my face, I can see like after a certain point of song, I'm like, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Like the the yeah, stressful yeah. stuff is, is yeah, past yeah, or whatever. Idea. Um, okay. All right, my next question is a little bit more general. Okay. And kind of maybe dovetails nicely with the shame thing. Uh, what areas do you think I could improve on as a performer or a drummer? Oh, wow. You want raw, open feedback. That's what TRT is all about, baby. How could you improve? This is very... <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. I would say... I can see you going through the Rolodex, figuring, figuring which one to choose. Well, I just don't know. No, I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out the way to say something in a not, like, uh, aggressive way. But I would say that there are some times where you go a little too hard on fills. Meaning? You could rein it in a little bit. Going to, like, reaching for something that's pretty wild and then not... Quite landing, quite landing it. it, as opposed to just being rock solid. And I think that drummers are the most abused musicians on stage in essentially every band because when you fuck up, they hear it. We talked a little bit with Albert about mm-hmm. this. People notice it when you fuck up, but when you play well, people don't notice it. And there's a long history of people yelling at their drummers that they're either playing too fast or too slow. I mean, I won't name names, but there was one band we were playing a festival with. And they were playing all their songs so fucking slow. And I knew that it was an overcorrection, probably because someone else in the band was saying, you're you're speeding up too much, you're speeding up too much. And so, I mean, listen, this is the project here where you're you're putting me in the spot where, you know, (laughs) saying things that I would not normally say to you. But I would say that there are times where you're probably reaching for the stars when, you know what, there's nothing wrong with being solid on planet Earth. But I like the stars, man. Okay, well, no, that's a chord. So do with that, do with that advice what you want. <laughs> Man, that was that made me very uncomfortable. Okay, how has being a touring musician changed the way you watch live music? Oh boy, 
fundamentally and sort of, I mean, everything. And maybe this is part of the reason why I still like going to see Fish so much. Yeah. is because they're a band that I saw pre-existing really any performance experience. And I feel like that's one of the few bands I can really go into and like, I can sort of remove the, all the context I have and just kind of enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, like you, you've been part of the sausage making for now for us over a decade. And you kind of, whether it's a production thing, whether it's, you know, like the lights are like kind of boring or they're super interesting, or you could tell someone's like maybe not performing as hard as they could or, or things like that. I, it's hard to not notice the little behind the scenes almost like professional things yeah. where I think 95 to 99% of actual ticket buying audience members like would not notice many of these things. So yeah, I, th- I think being part of it and having had so much experience on the stage that you can't help but think of it from that context. Yeah. I probably also <laughs> would say that I, I don't always stay as long as I used to. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... You leave shows early now. Not always. Not always. Not always, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is almost a pure fatigue factor, particularly when if we're being very active, that you know I my whole working life revolves around live concerts and the making them happen, the lead up, whatever. Is that on the social time or the off time? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like I'd rather go to a movie or something because that's different. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, th- which isn't all, all the time. And you know, if we're not touring, I mean, I, st- I still love. I still love live music. Let's let's not mince words here. Made a whole podcast about it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that there is a certain fatigue element when when that's the main part of your job. And then going and sitting on the other side isn't always necessarily relaxing or like this immersive experience that you'd want it to be. Cool. All right. This one's way easier. Uh, and we actually we did a, a test episode on this that never aired. So I figured I would get a little oh, okay, bit. Okay, nice. Um, whatever, first thought, best thought. But what are the best, worst Vampire Weekend shows for you? Yeah, I can't remember. Well, oh, the one that I remember, when we did the test episode, I had one that was one of the best and one of the worst, which was when we played Falls Festival Mm. in 2013 going into 2014. It's the only time we've played on New Year's Eve and been on stage while a year changed over. And that's, um, did I say it was in Australia? Sorry, I can't even. Okay. I knew you were going to get there, though. It's a festival in Australia. And believe it or not, I guess this will be airing in early December. We will be going back to this festival for the first time in six years over New Year's, the one that's coming up. But it was one of the best shows because the crowd was going absolutely fucking nuts. And it was like, they were really just jacked up to be seeing us playing and to be uh, experiencing a new year together. So that's why it was one of the best. And one of the worst, why it was one of the worst rather, is because someone threw a flare on stage and almost hit me, but the flare missed me and then went under our monitor console. And now monitor, I feel like we've never explained what monitors are, but that's what every, that's like there's someone who's sitting at a board and they're sending different sounds to each musician on stage. So you want specific things that you hear so you can play better. I get a lot of your kick drum because I'm playing to that a lot of the time. But so it's a very big piece of technical equipment. And so the um, the flare like was underneath the board and the board caught fire and there was this huge onstage fire. And it was getting to the point where it was sort of scary that, like, is the stage going to entirely catch on fire? Is this be- going to become an extremely dangerous situation very soon? And thankfully, they managed to put the fire out on stage. I believe it involved a champagne bucket. Yeah, it was crazy. But, like, um, I mean, you he- there are all these horror stories of, like, you know, there being 
fires in venues and people dying and stuff like that. And it was legitimately very scary, I thought. Um, it ended up working out, but that is why it is also one of my worst shows because I felt like that is the closest I've been to dying on stage thus far. So, Falls Festival, let's keep it hyped. But don't let's try keep it and rockin'. kill us. But don't, yes. But beware where you throw your flares, if flares will be thrown. Um, what is a typical day like for you on tour? And this is a couple people have sent this question in, but like, walk me through your day where let's say there was a show the night before and there's a show that night. So you're waking up. Okay. So I'm assuming, let's say if we're taking like the net, like mean day mm-hmm. as like a mathematical term, uh, we're somewhere let's in the mountains or the Midwest, which means more recently I've have been having trouble sleeping, falling asleep in buses in our bus. So I probably went to sleep like three or four. Not that I necessarily wanted to, but that's just kind of what happened. I'm waking up either kind of groggy at 10 or well-rested at 11 or 12. Um, usually the first thing to do is to brush your teeth and use the restroom. And then it depends. We've been sound checking every time, which I think depends on the tour and the band. I think a day... Did you say what time you get up? Somewhere between 10 and noon. Okay, yeah. I think that a day of having, having time free until the show time, which is, let's say, 8.30, 8.45 is very different than having your afternoon free until three when you have to soundtrack. And then, so there's like two stretches. Yeah. But we have soundtrack, so there's a soundtrack yeah. there. So what do you do before soundtrack? Probably get some food. I think, I was just talking about this on our last tour in Mexico, that I think the holy trinity for me, in terms of like, of a day to feel, um, to feel like I'm taking care of myself, to feel like, I, you know, I, I think part of it is if, if I stayed in the venue all day, or like thought about the show all day, by the time I got to the show, like my mental capacity wouldn't be there. So part of it is, is getting space, to be honest, mm-hmm. and to doing stuff that's not related to the stage. So CT's Holy Trinity of a day would be, this is more of a touristy that, you know, like in Europe, say, but would be a house of God, some mm-hmm. sort of church to uh, investigate and, and feel the vibes, would be a record store, search through those crates, find some good stuff, and then would be a bowling alley. So on, on, a, nor- <laughs> on a normal day... Probably House of God record store before soundcheck. And then if, if there's a bowling alley close to the venue, I'd probably hit it up after soundcheck. You're eating dinner kind of right after soundcheck, so you, you digest and your, your body's not too leaden, too like weighed down by the time the show time comes. Probably in the venue, start concentrating on the show an hour and a half before, certainly an hour before, warming up 45 minutes before. Um, I was saying earlier how I don't get, I wouldn't say I get anxious, but you know, some jitters, just there's adrenaline or whatever, whatever it is. You start feeling that like maybe 15, 10 minutes before when our tour manager or whomever comes in to say 10 minutes, five minutes saying, get your inners in and get your packs on, which are the monitor system essentially. Um, so you, if you ever see the little wire, either depending on the person, either sticking out of the back of their shirt or just hanging loose into the little headphone things in the ears, that's the pack that it, wireless pack that it connects to is where it's getting the information, but that's where I'm hearing your bass, I'm hearing vocals, I'm hearing the keys, whatever it is for mm-hmm. that song you're hearing. So that, you know, when you put those on, you know, you're getting ready to hear. If you turn it on before there's anyone on stage, you hear the crowd, hear how hot the crowd is. You hope that it's a hot crowd. Yeah. And yeah, and then, you know, hopefully you go out there, crush it. Uh, I was going to make a joke about reaching for the stars in the film, but I don't want to make you feel bad. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that. You uh, can make reaching for the stars jokes. That's Okay. <laughs> Just reach for the stars on stage. Uh, reach for the stars for <laughs> two and a half hours, 2.15. <laughs> yeah, and then after the show, there's generally, because you're eating dinner earlier in the day than yeah. I would like a normal, like a day off, that there's usually some sort of food. Chicken wings and sushi, I would say, are the two most yeah, prevalent yeah. options in the Vampire Definitely. Weekend universe. And then, you know, hopefully if, if you have friends or family in town, you go say, what's up? 
but you're kind of relaxing. You're there's definitely I I, I enjoy if I'm talking about the half an hour before of like the build up into it. There's like sort of like a group element to it. I think the same is conversely true on the half an hour after. Yeah, we're kind of all psyched if something went really well or someone's upset about something. You know, you kind of there's still the communal connection from the stage that is right there when you come off. And then, you know, as you're eating those uh, Taipina chicken wings, you know, you're kind of getting your own space and a device comes out or whatever. And then, you know, you go to sleep, do it all over again. Love it. Okay. I think, man, we really, <laughs> we're cycling together right now. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's beautiful. So my question right now is describe your perfect day on tour, not your average day, what a perfect day would be. Perfect and have, day if any day in, in memory tour. comes close. Perfect day on tour. That is a great question. And, Thank you. And I don't even necessarily... Well, I will say, in terms of a perfect day not performing on tour... Okay, let, let's yeah, do that. Let's yeah, do that, yeah, because okay. I, just, I just did a day there, yeah, you did, with very, a show. Yeah, very music-centric. But I think there's something nice when a group of us, whatever the group may be, go on, like an excursion, go experience something together that is maybe not music related and just like sightseeing or whatever, or being together. And um, when we were on tour in Europe in July, so you're talking about trip to a lake. I you're think, about, okay. I think right, we're yeah, going to be okay. talking about a trip. <laughs> so we both share this, but we both love Italy, right? Absolutely. 100%. And I would love to have a music project that flourishes in Italy. I would love to do an all Italian tour. Um, you know, sometimes you just with touring and when it's booked and people have been asking some questions about this, but like you tend to go where you have your fans, you follow the fans. That's yes. like, so you're, you're not just deciding, pulling out a map and deciding where you want to go. It, there's obviously like a, a business side to it. And so we've played Italy, but not very much relative to, we've been say, told it's a tough nut to crack. It's, it's, I think so. But like, you know, relative to England, France, great, great, great places. We had, did have great shows there this summer. Yeah. Absolutely. But so. We played one show in Italy this summer, mm -hmm. and it will probably be the only time we go to Italy uh, on, on this, this album, and probably the only time we play in Italy for the next like five years. So, anyways, the day after, I was part of a group. I had a, an old dear friend who lives in Dublin also came and joined us, and a group of us, of which you were not a part of, it's hard to pin me down, man. Did a day trip to Lake Como, aka Lago di Como, and just had a great day walking around the lake swimming, enjoying one another's presence. And there was even some hardships, if I remember correctly. There was a car rental discussion that That's didn't work true. out, so you yeah. took a train. Yeah, yeah, so we were going to rent a car and drive to Lago di Orta. My Italian is very nice, right? But, but so we got to the car rental place, and there was no car for us, so we took a train. Um, it was the most beautiful train ride I think I've ever been on, just because there's mountains on one side, lake on the other. Did you run into George in a mall? No, but later and I found the out. Wait, I, and the twins? And the twins. But no, I, I heard that George was on the Lago, and oh, you could feel the vibe feel. in the air. But we weren't at the same place as him. But like, I don't know. I, I, it's possible I would never have gone to that place, Lake Como, in my life if I were not a musician that traveled a lot. And I feel like there's a lot of times where you get used to the rhythm of it and every day being the same and you you don't necessarily take stock of how like sort of special an opportunity it is to travel and play music. And so the perfect day for an off day on tour would be going somewhere I would not have gone otherwise if I weren't a musician and uh, eating well and enjoying great company. So kind of like what I was talking about is is 
on a day off, and obviously that's that's what it's for. But is getting that space and getting the context. And I think if what you're saying in the group context too mm-hmm. is sharing experiences that aren't only the job, only the music. Because if that's all there is, you can run out of gas easier or something. Absolutely. So it's sort of more of a recharge thing. Yeah. You want to know the one one word of Italian I know? Yeah. Stuzzicadente. What does that mean? Toothpick. That's really good. <laughs> I was because I was I don't know how to say toothpick in Spanish, and I was coming up against that in Mexico recently. Okay, we alluded to this already a little bit. We're going to be in Australia over New Year's. Do you mind being away from home during holidays? Are there things you worry about missing back home when you're gone so much? The short answer is yes. I mean, I think even if there's not problematic, but even if the, you know, even if holidays are somewhat corporatized and you can just have just as meaningful a day on another calendar day with your friends and family, there is still something, you know, where the rituals of of those days of those times um, that you want to spend with the people you love and the and not that. I don't love no, you. I don't, yeah, I don't no. love the Vampire Weekend universe. Of course. But, but there is, yes, I think you, but you also, we kind of learned, learned this early. I, I feel like someone told us, I forget who told us this, but like someone essentially said like no special days. Don't think you can set aside a day, which is probably different now that we have a little bit more flexibility yeah, yeah. and have a little bit more say in calendar stuff. But certainly early on when you're trying to make it happen, you're trying to get a fan base, you're trying to get to places, whatever. I mean, yeah, you miss a ton. I, I feel like in some ways my family gives me probably extra leeway. In mm-hmm. some ways, probably leeway I don't deserve of like if, if, I, if I'm not there able to be there for something, you know, I always try. So yeah, I think the answer is yes. But also I think with the people that really are there with you and for you in the long haul, whether it's a romantic partner, whether it's a tight bro, whether it's a nuclear family, whatever it is, um, I think they understand that, you know, it's a sacrifice kind of on all sides. To some extent, it's our, it is our job and remains a dream kind of to like, to be able to go to Australia to play music over New Year's remains pretty fucking cool. Yeah. So even if there's a bummer aspect to it. Uh, but I think what, the people that are there with you for the long term understand it. And net net, you know, you are there for days, even if you're not there for every day. Yeah. At least that's what I think. Um, other people mm-hmm. <laughs> might give you a different answer. But there is a bummer aspect to it. But I think most people understand it. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite medium of entertainment while traveling? Uh, it really depends. But lately, I've been enjoying reading on tour. And I wasn't doing that earlier this Could year. Could you be more specific? Like reading... Novels, novels. Reading, reading, reading books. So reading either um, nonfiction or novels. Um, I have wanted to reread Dracula for a really long time, which is one of my favorite books from high school. And I was just enjoying reading Dracula when we were on tour in Mexico. People have been saying, uh, my wife told me that she's on a group chat with some of her colleagues where one of them like owns a couple dogs. And apparently the dogs are like howling a lot. And like a lot of the animals are acting up. And I think that's because it's Scorpio season and things are getting spooky and it's the spookiest time of the year. I mean, when you're hearing this listener, we'll be on the other side of spooky season and everything will be okay. But I think reading a book that that sort of makes sense with the time of the year, like Dracula for me, that's been really fun. Okay, let me follow up because I have thematic ones that kind of... Yeah. This was actually friend submitted by The Mets Man. Okay, nice. What's your favorite Russian novel? Um, I would probably say Brothers Karamazov. Uh, that's one that I've read twice, and I think I'm, I'm going to tackle that one again sometime soon. And this one comes from me. What was the, the best indictment you've read all year? The best indictment that I read all year? Um, I haven't been reading many 
recently, but um, the Internet Research Agency one from uh, the Mueller probe was a pretty fascinating read. And um, You like Papadopoulos, too, I feel like. Oh, I don't want to talk about him. He's like such a crazy <laughs> right wing. I mean, that, that also was last year, but um, oh. I thought the kind of forensic detail in the indictment, like who exactly was doing what hacking on what day at what time I thought was absolutely fascinating. So that was definitely my favorite. <laughs> um, two quick ones. Where is somewhere you wish you could play or you want to play? This is something we asked Havoc and he said Africa. Where is somewhere you want to play live music that you haven't played? Good question. I think um, probably the subcontinent, probably mm-hmm. India or... Oh, yeah. Or People are going like like Explosions in the Sky and Tycho. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know that some... Yeah, yeah. There are... It is something that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just feel like that culture, that place... For a lot of reasons, I feel like playing music there would be really special. Mm-hmm. And I think it would just be so different from what everything else I've we've experienced. Yeah. But I think it would it would add a lot of context to the touring in general. And, to, and music specific, specifically, I mean, I, music over there is obviously has a different tradition that it would be awesome to get over yeah. there. What was the most surprising show of your life? Surprising show? Um, <laughs> probably the acoustic thing we did in the park in May because— Oh, I, only, I only found out about it like yeah yeah. Oh, <laughs> a surprising in that regard. Yeah yeah. Okay, I like that. Okay, this goes back to I believe episode two of this season. But CT, what age do you consider to be middle age for an American? <laughs> it's got to be forty. But what's the range? Because I've been thinking about this so much more after Didn't, people have been hitting me up yeah, because I, getting... I self-identify a little bit as early middle, middle age. Uh, and then there was a couple emails where some people were horrified. But I've actually. I've developed You've a system that I want to present, but first okay. I want to hear your answer. Uh, I think if there's an emblematic year, it's got to be 40, right? Which is not even necessarily half of one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the average lifespan, yeah, yeah. but it's probably around 80. Yeah. That to me feels like... That's the beginning of middle age. Beginning of the, middle age. And then one is the end of middle age. The end of middle age? 50. Okay. I think it's that decade because most people probably live between 80 and... Yeah. That's probably a, a, okay. some sort of average thing. Not and not. and I'm not an ageist. Yeah, yeah. You were there, so horrified when I brought of, it up. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of life left in a 45-year-old. Of course. Incredible things to do. <laughs> a lot of time ahead of you. I'm not saying that at the end of middle age, it's time to hang yeah. them up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, when I think of middle age, I think of probably like 40 to 50. Okay. Probably maybe 40 to 60, you know, See, with advances okay. in, in medical technology and stuff. Yeah, some, on Wiki, it says 45 to 65. But to me, you know, you're in, a 63-year-old. You don't, tr- you don't that trust middle an encyclopedia? No, well, okay. I just, I just, the, the reason why the average age right now of an American uh, lifespan is 78.1 years. I looked it up before this. So let's call it 80. I was thinking about this kind of in mathematical terms because so if you can say 35 to 45. If 40 is the exact middle point, the day after you turn 40, if, so if you're 40, that's middle age. The day after you turn, you're I mean, past. Every day half, is a day closer to death. If, it's if that's true. But so I just feel like the the age system is insufficient to really address this. So what I propose is breaking middle age into three segments, 35 to 45, we'll call that early middle age. Okay. 45 to 55, we'll call that middle middle age, which has a beautiful ring to it. And what do we call 55 to 65? Late middle age. So that's my system. I know it's an explosive idea to be presenting on this podcast. Where's the but, Renaissance in there? But I'm gonna I'm gonna put it. What do you What do you mean by the Renaissance? Well, because you're talking about the Middle Ages and maybe late oh, Middle yeah, Ages. Oh yeah, yeah. Like where's the Renaissance? It's beautiful. Come in? Oh yeah, no, that is yeah. See, so just I, I'm just gonna put it out there. We'll see if anyone adopts my new system. What's of the email aging. again? Because I don't know it. <laughs> it's oh yeah, it's uh, the road taken at the ringer.com. 
let me know what you think about the system that I'm suggesting. All right, my next question I'm pretty excited about. Okay. And this will probably be a pretty quick one. How many State Farm agents are there nationwide <laughs> waiting to assist you with all of your insurance needs? Countless? 19,000, bro. Oh, that's in the <laughs> copy? I just fire it off. I'm not even... <laughs> that is a great question. All right, my question. You've been renting e-scooters when we get into cities recently on tour. Do you ride your scooter on the sidewalk or on the road? Do you follow traffic signals? Where do you leave the scooter when you are done with it? I have ridden on the sidewalk, but very briefly. Oh. Usually, usually it's... But sometimes I've... Depending on the city. Yeah. I feel like I've opened it once and it says, like, don't ride on the street. Huh. Like, different... Okay. I, there is no national or international, you know, there's no Hague for we need, we e-scooter. Need this, we, need this, we need more. Uh, yeah. Policy. Yeah, we need more. So I think that there are different things for okay. generally bike lanes or yeah, yeah. over to the right of, mm-hmm. of a one-way street or whatever. 95% of the time. Okay. Uh, I think I'm a pretty excellent parker. I'm generally not super out in the boonies where there's no other e-scooters there. Yeah. So I generally look for where there's already a few or one and and head there and sort of... Connect up with the crew, if you will. Mm-hmm. Traffic laws are probably a little bit sketchier. Uh, oh. If I'm at a red light and there's no cars coming, I take advantage of the gray area of whether I'm a <gasps> pedestrian or whether I'm a vehicle <gasps> and go over. Um, Damn. Bad boy. I think. Bad boy of e-scooters. Well, I'm glad the, the one Instagram story you posted me on a scooter, I did follow the traffic laws. You were laws. following the traffic laws. I was very impressed. I thought you always You know, I really them. respected your honesty about the earlier question about your uh, maybe having a beer before your senior year yeah, yeah. performance. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to, I wanted to repay that in kind. I feel like it was flavored Smirnoff something. <laughs> okay, okay. It wasn't beer. You didn't specify, but yeah, I, was, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to give you an easier, just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some flavored Smirnoff thing. Yeah. Um, I'm mixed about the e-scooter thing, though. Okay. But that's, a, that's probably a different. A different, okay, a different I understand thing. that. Um, who do you think is going to win the NBA Finals this season? Clippers. <laughs> I got. I, I'm. I'm all in. I was hoping that was going to be a gotcha question, but before we, no, it seems even like just walking it, through the ringer offices, you're going to. There's a vibe in the yeah. city. I can feel it. I can feel the vibe. That's What's probably, your pick? It's probably the smart money. Yeah. Based, we're two games in more okay. or less to the season, and that okay. seems like the smart money. Although, uh, Nets 2021. Let's not sleep. Okay. On that. Let's not all sleep right. on that. All right. Uh, do you ever get sick of touring? No. I get sick while touring. Ha ha. Uh, <laughs> thank you. There are times when we, this has come up in a few situations where probably I need to, I feel like I need to recharge mental space. I find my mind wandering more two months in or like if there's a lot, a lot straight to turn towards the end, you're kind of, you've done it enough that you, you find your mind wandering maybe more mm-hmm. than you, certainly more than you'd want it to or more than you expect it to. And there are times when you miss home, you miss people. But I can't say that I've ever really like truly been like, fuck this. I don't want to be here. I, I really, yeah. in total honesty, I don't think I've ever, ever had a moment that was like at that level um, because the the baseline of it is pretty awesome and, and it sort of remains and it, whether that's the travel or the music or whatever it is, like there's so much that you get tired of it and maybe need like to recharge but never sick of it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. If you could go back to the summer of 2007 before we started our very first tour and give yourself advice, what would that advice be? Well, the first bit of advice would be to uh, hop on the smartphone revolution. Because that, <laughs> <laughs> that flip phone shit is not, is not going to last and it's not going to help you out much here. Uh, I was the one, I believe, or my parents even, who like bought the paper atlas, which, right, yeah. which was handy and sort of a nice symbol to have in the car, but certainly was not 
used that much and nor nor would it ever again. So I feel like in terms of connectivity and and ease of use, smartphones are here to stay. Nice. It's 2007 CT. Uh, and I think more in the, in the spirit of your question, yeah, I said this earlier, and I think this is probably a little truism for me, is that you live to play another day. Whether that means, you know, some of the shows we played earlier where no one came, or even on the flip side, some of the shows we played where, every, you know, it was sold out and like crazy. There's never really a single show or a single song or whatever that's going to define you as a person, you as a musician, you as the group you're in. Touring is a volume game in a lot of ways. Not for everybody, but in the way that we've done things, certainly that's my experience. And I think that by taking the pressure off of each individual show, the overall experience of touring and the totality of it probably gets a little bit easier or gets a little bit less weighty. Um, and you can enjoy the bird's eye view, which I, I've gotten better at more recently, but it was, it was certainly yeah. something I was not good at in 2007. Just to take a step back and, and not always just think about literally what's right in front of you because it'll be okay. All right. I think that's great. All right. So my wrap-up here of the Chris and Chris Interview Each Other special is what have you learned from doing The Road Taken first season? Ooh, wow. I guess the thing that I've learned the most and I didn't necessarily know going into this is how everybody has a story to tell. Every musician, every part of a crew has a story to tell. And people who have never done interviews before can tell you like so much incredible, fascinating things about them. I love the episode we did with Ray, who I don't think has done an interview before. I felt like That's that was Race Win, Race episode Win, five. Episode five. Gun. And um, he just had so many great stories to tell. And I guess... That's maybe why podcasts are so popular is because hearing people talk to each other and tell their stories are can be a very exciting thing. And um, I just, yeah, I love talking to every single person we talk to on this season. And there's so many more ideas. I know you have so many more ideas for where we can go with this. But uh, yeah, that element of it, the fact that I've kind of learned so much from so many people. And also, I guess, like people who may seem out of reach or, or seem like mythical figures People that are still alive, still on this earth, if you reach out, who knows? Maybe they'll come and talk to you. And uh, having been a Can fan for so much of my life and, and obsessed with that band and their original singer, Malcolm Mooney, being this mythical figure who, to my knowledge, has never done like a full, long interview that we were able to. I just, you know, found his email from his website, wrote him something heartfelt that I really believed and that he wrote back and was so generous with our time and had us come into his house. I don't know. That part of it. The fact that people would want to talk with us, that's something also that I learned, I'd say. Yeah, I think one thing I've been heartened by is how fascinating it, it all still is, kind of. Where, you know, we've been doing this for a while now, for over a decade, and not that I ever thought I knew everything, certainly, but yeah, having these conversations with people from different eras, like Chris Hillman in particular, of, you know, his career stretching from the 60s onward, peers like Patrick Carney or Laura Marling or people like that, I, it, it has been... It's weird. I mean, this is the idea that I had had for this like a, two years ago. But I, I mean, I, I still find touring fundamentally fascinating, even though I've been doing it for over a decade. Um, whether that's like reading books about Bruce Springsteen in the 80s and when they get into the minutia of tour, that that is like interesting to me. And yeah, I, I, I do think, uh, I think we've only kind of like scratched the surface in some ways. Definitely. The, the people we've talked to and what we've been able to do with this one. Um, so my one 
Last meaty final question is, oh, yeah. who would you like to talk to for season two? Um, I would love to talk to a pop star, someone who tours in that realm. It, uh, I'm not going to say any specific one, but I would love to talk to a pop star. And I'd actually love to talk to people more on the business technical side. So I, next season, I'd love to talk to a booking agent um, or a manager. Um, that's part of why I love the Ray episode so much because, you know, a hired gun is not someone who usually talks about being a hired gun, but right. there's so much to learn from them. How about you? Uh, why, why don't you want to name names? Uh, um, I would love to interview Taylor Swift, uh, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, <laughs> uh, Sean Mendez. Me uh, too, me too, me too. Yeah, yeah. Beyonce, Rihanna, any of them. If you're listening, <laughs> any of those five people I just named. Yes, yes. Obviously, they're all <laughs> big fans of the pod. You know, we'd love to ha- come on down. They got a great setup here at, at the Ringer HQ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it seems like to talk to people, again, kind of like Havoc in a way of like whose experiences are more different. You know, yeah. as we discussed and found out, there's, you know, a certain vein of universality that runs through all of this experience. But yeah, I think Taylor Swift in particular, because she's coming back after having not touring yeah. for a while next year, would be so fascinating. Um, somewhat naturally and not unexpectedly, I agree, is seeing people who tour at such a massive scale. I mean, I think Adele would be another person of who's, course. who's, who's fascinating. That they remain a person who has to perform and like warm up their vocals and whatever it is they have to do. It's it's not. I think when it's such a spectacle and such a big show, that I think the personality of the person can sometimes be lost. And I I think talking about that with them would be yeah. fascinating. I think a tour manager round round table would Definitely. be pretty would be yeah. pretty cool. Um, so if you know any pop stars and you're yeah. listening and you have a direct line, hook us up. The road taken at the ringer. But be polite. Be, polite. be respectful. Yeah, yeah, be, yeah, yeah totally. You know, it's, it's okay. But yeah, uh, we appreciate the help. Um, and so we just said who we'd like to talk to, but I think keep the questions coming in. But also if if you have people who maybe we might not have heard about or would be outside of our purview or whatever or we didn't mention, please send in any suggestions of people whose touring stories you'd like to hear. The road taken at the ringer.com is the email. I think we should thank each and every one of our guests for this first season. So let's, uh, no, you don't want to? Oh, no, yeah. No, yeah, we should. Yeah. No, okay. I think we should. Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, I'd like to thank Pat Carney. I'd like to thank Winston Marshall. I'd like to thank Laura Marling. I'd like to thank Havoc from Mob Deep. I'd like to thank Race One. I'd like to thank Michelle Branch. I'd like to thank Malcolm Mooney. I'd like to thank Albert Hammond Jr. I'd like to thank Chris Hillman. I'd like to thank Chris Payo. And I'd like to thank Chris Thompson. And also, thank you for listening. This has been a fun adventure. Shout out to Isaac, Juliet, everyone at The Ringer, Pat, who's helped us out. It's been very exciting to be partners with you guys, so thank you very much. Hell yeah. And we'd like to leave you with the poem by the great Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. 
thank you. But we took the road though, so it's really it's way yeah, different. Yeah. <laughs>